Hello, and welcome to Tales from the Leeds Library, the Leeds Library's podcast series in which we talk to members of our extended community about their lives, their work, and their relationship to books, libraries, and literature. Founded in 1768, the Leeds Library is the oldest surviving subscription library in the UK, and throughout this series we'll also be diving periodically into the library's rich history to find out what makes us and our members one of the most interesting and unique cultural institutions in Leeds and the UK. I'm Molly McGrath, the Projects Assistant at the Leeds Library, and today our guest is Joe Williams. Joe is an actor, performer and founder and director of Heritage Corner Leeds, an education and community engagement project which blends creativity with black history as a way to deliver anti-racism and diversity training alongside arts projects. Through Heritage Corner, Joe runs Leeds Black History Walk, which since 2009 has celebrated African history and diversity in Leeds. Um, so you started Heritage Corner in 2014 based on the incredible success of the Leeds Black History Walks and today they form just one part of the broad ranging work that this organisation is involved with. Can you tell me a little bit about how and why you founded Heritage Corner Leeds and all the different kinds of work you do? Great, uh, thank you and thank you for inviting me to this podcast. I'm a, a great fan of the, of the Leeds Library, it's, it's so inspirational. Um, why I created Heritage Corner in 2014 was because of, um, after decades of looking into hidden history in Leeds, particularly related to Africans, um, the rich information, it didn't seem to be registering enough just through the walk alone, but I've always used the arts, any well, at least since uh, the 1990s and 2003. I started really in 2003 when I took on the character of Olauda Equiana. Mm-hmm. And I believe the library has a first edition copy of his autobiography, or an early copy anyway. Yeah. And Olaude Equiano visited Yorkshire in 1791, wrote a letter to the Leeds Mercury thanking, thanking the good people of Yorkshire for their help in the fight against slavery. So um, Equiano was um, formerly enslaved and uh, became an abolitionist. He was an instigator, really, of the Abolition Society, one of the early members, and quite an activist. Um, toured Britain twice with his autobiography, twice in five years, which is no easy feat um, with transport as it was in those days. And so potentially he's a a pioneer, you might say, of the political book tour, something we take for granted today. But in 1791, it it wasn't uh, that established a deal. Um, And so when I took on this character, Um, There were a lot of hills and mountains for me to climb in terms of a different century, a different persona from myself, but I think I've become a bit more like him. Um, And he's Nigerian born and he was enslaved. So that was quite a hill to climb and Mm. you don't start from where you finish. So where I am now with the character is... I am completely at ease with him because I've had the pleasure and the honour 
of performing him so many hundreds of times. Um, and um, it's great to stick with one character because then your understanding of his world develops. And I felt such an attachment uh, to this character and his humanity and then realized that the humanity of Africans in, in Western theatre and in the arts, the representation of humanity is, is, is missing really, where the African is a construct within a framework that pitches him in the negative or her mm. um, uh, as, a, as a problem in society as someone who comes from uh, a civilization that hasn't evolved, that hasn't contributed anything to humanity, um, a, you know, um, in, in, in a lot of literature and the arts, a wretched creature. Um, and um, so, I, obviously, I felt quite strongly about this. And this is why, as an actor, I set out to find heroes and find ways of representing them. Mm. And um, after doing the, starting the history walk in 2009, I then went, I decided to do an MA. I didn't know how to take it forward. So I did an MA at the School of Performance and Cultural Industries at the University of Leeds. And um, Heritage Corner was pretty much born the same year because I was so inspired by that course i loved it i loved being at university for those that have been the walk on the walk know that i was literally born on the university campus wow and uh, for a first generation west indian uh, born to windrush parents to then go to university was like wow yeah this is this is incredible and i just loved the resources um, and the love of knowledge that everybody is there to share. And uh, I want to go back. <laughs> I felt so at home there. Um, it was a wonderful experience. And so creating Heritage Corner, I developed, I was able to develop difficult questions which I couldn't answer outside of a university setting, but inside... I was given the space and the time and the resources and the inspiration from my uh, tutors mm. um, to to look in different directions and you know answers that I arrived at were literally just there on the doorstep and mm. you know when you you're looking at something complicated you're you're thinking oh the answer must be complicated as well but that's yeah um, the the narratives are rich. And the, the representation of humanity is also rich. And so therefore, I, I don't see why I need to do anything else until, yeah. that, until that registers, I suppose, in, in yeah. the best way that I can attempt to do that. It's really interesting, this kind of relationship between like, creativity and representation and, and, you know, quote unquote, reality or history that, uh, in the way that it's written down. And yeah, I wanted to to ask you about um, the, one of the themes we've talked a lot about on the podcast is the, the different ways that heritage can be explored through the arts. 
um, especially now in a digital age when all these incredible possibilities for different ways to promote and engage with heritage are available. And you, as you say, have a background in performing and acting um, that plays a really crucial role in your tours when you kind of slip into and out of these characters. So I guess, why do you think it's important to bring history to life through the arts? What do you notice about the ways that people engage with historical information when it's presented in a creative way, as opposed to in a kind of a drier, more academic format? Um, as, a, as an actor, you just um, crave to play quality characters. Um, mm largely because there's something quite therapeutic, quite cathartic about it. If you're playing uh, an empowering character, some of that rubs off on you. So I realized very early in my career, if I keep playing negative stereotypes, that's what's going to rub off onto me. And I didn't want that. So I said, well, you know, on a, on a, a kind of homeopathic, natural healing um, remedy, um, to my career, how can I play more positive roles? Mm. So that was the first instance. But then when matched with heritage, you realise that you can offer a different interpretation to what is commonly perceived. And especially as far as Africans in Europe are concerned, there is very little self-representation, mm. but a lot of misrepresentation by others. And so it's a, a great big stumbling block to overcome um, trying to persuade others to look at things a little differently. Mm. Um, and I, th I think repetition is probably um, the best tool that, that, that I have, is just to keep believing. The arts has a reputation of being uh, short term, so it, it happens and then it's gone. Mm. Into especially modern modern art and you know it's it's, it's like a, a meme you see it you appreciate it but that was yesterday's news yeah. Move on. Yeah. what's next whereas um i've just repeated the same thing to show how much i believe in it but able to do other things yeah as, as well um and i think in terms of heritage in britain and europe there are two distinct definitions, almost like left and right, really. Uh, the right want things fixed as, th as they have been left by colonial ancestors. And there are pro progressives who think um, that heritage should be open to interpretation according to the generation that you're in. And um, I'm of the, the latter, that heritage isn't fixed. And especially when it's built on um, colonial and uh, a slave economy, mm. you're going to get untruths that are framed as truth. Mm. And um, we've got to be understanding in how and why and in the case of, um, in the heritage industry, the, uh, the, the, the estates, um, the large estates that were built from that heritage, they're a part of that construct of this is who we'd like to be, 
this is what we're capable of achieving. And I think that's important. Mm -hmm. No matter how you go about getting it, it, it it's, it's like a family portrait, isn't it? It's like, yeah, we want a reflection of who we are. And, mm -hmm. and, and with the stately homes, that's kind of what you get. People aspire to attain, achieve those classical aspirations, etc. Um, so I'm, I'm not saying it's not important that it should be brought down, but just that we need to see it in the framework for what it is based on how and when it was generated. Mm. Um, but what it's achieved is still important to the aspirations of the country. Yeah. So that, that, that shouldn't be um, torn down. But what needs to be torn down is the mindset of supremacy. Yeah, yeah. And a kind of, yeah, the ideal of kind of teleological human progress. And I think that um, creativity and the arts can kind of open up different ways of thinking and and the kind of yeah receptiveness to different ideas and and alternative narratives and stories and I like I can't remember where I heard this phrase but uh, uh, that was used about art but it's not like is it true as in is it kind of a factual representation but is there truth in it is it you know yeah. and and what's true today doesn't necessarily have to be true for tomorrow yeah. you know yeah tomorrow's generation will find their own truths yeah um, and so what one of uh, in one of the interviews that I read that that you gave um you say that the African presence in Yorkshire doesn't just begin with the Windrush generation um but goes back 2,000 years and I guess without spoiling too much of the tour um could you briefly tell us a bit about the kind of topics that you cover and the the ways that these kind of narratives are hidden within the, the fabric of Leeds. Yeah, um, very good question. Um, it, it won't be giving too much away um, about the tour. It's, it's one of the key principles is that um, sadly, we've been educated to believe that Africans have only just arrived into civilization. And uh, I remember a, a feeling a, a mental strain, a kind of conflict in that I, myself, and my people, and my genetics, and where I came from was relatively young and new to the table mm -hmm. of civilization, when that couldn't be further from the truth. Um, there were Africans in Yorkshire 2,000 years ago. They've discovered um, mummified remains in York, which suggests Egyptian mummification. Uh, they've discovered temples dedicated to Nile Valley deities, particularly Isis. Um, they've discovered two mummified Egyptians in Barnsley. <laughs> and oh, wow. Roman, Roman Barnsley was once the, the pinnacle of the universe, and we missed it. Um, wow. it's, so there's all this stunning information, but I first learned about Africans in Yorkshire from uh, a Yorkshireman, a white Yorkshireman, uh, born in Hull and was a reporter on at the Evening Post and in the 1980s published uh, an amazing book called Staying Power. Mm. And that was um, written um, 
Oh, his name's just jumped out of my head. My my lead hero, one of my lead heroes. Peter, Fr- Peter Fryer. Okay. F-R-Y-E-R, Peter Fryer. Uh, sadly, no longer with us, but that book opened my eyes. Um, and I went to hear him speak one time at the Leeds West Indian Centre when he was giving a talk there. But basically, in that book, Staying Power, he brings to life many uh, figures of African heritage in British history and gives them a life, a sense of humanity. And I just, I'd just never come across that anywhere before. Uh, there are always these difficult questions when it comes to representation of my humanity. Why should that be? Mm. Why should that be questioned, you know, to this day? Um, it having to be contextualized, you know, and it's like, come on, we've got to move on from this. Yeah. this, is, this is, you're having a laugh, you're having a laugh. Um, and But it goes even deeper than the Romans because um, the Greeks were in Egypt for 300 years and they changed a lot of the names. And so the original meanings were lost to the people themselves. But your um, British and European explorers, adventurers, travelers, uh, to the uh, Middle East and to Africa um, would be inspired by Nile Valley civilization. They convinced themselves it must have been a white civilization. Um, and when the museum in Cairo was built in order to keep the artifacts there in Egypt instead of exporting it to all these museums in Europe, and they built the museum. They listed all the dynasties on top of the museum, apart from the 25th dynasty. Mm. And the 25th dynasty happened to be all Nubian pharaohs, black pharaohs, uh, Kushites, who, uh, two of them, Shabaka, um, sorry, Tahaka, uh, particularly, is mentioned in the Bible. He helped to save. Solomon's temple by going to the defense of Israel. Um, and there's some fantastic narratives, mm. but they were intentionally hidden by colonialism to justify slavery. Mm. So that, that's, that's what we're bringing out here. Mm. And the fact that the Western civilization is actually quite influenced by Nile Valley civilizations mm. in so many different ways. Yeah. Um, an obvious pointer would be um, Temple Mills in Holbeck, mm-hmm. modeled on a temple at Edfu in Egypt. And of course, the Leeds Museum has a mummy. They once had four, but now there's only one left. Um, but a French philosopher called Count Volney, V-O-L-N-E-Y, um, proclaimed that there in Egypt, a race of men now regarded, you know, as savages or whatever because of their thick lips and woolly hair, are the very ones to whom we owe our arts and our sciences, mm. found, founded on the study of the laws of nature. The people of the Nile Valley, like the Assyrians and many others, studied the stars and documented their learnings and pass that down for generations. To me, that's one of the most amazing things that Africa has contributed because 
Egypt as we see it today, that wisdom started off in a small location and expanded. And the wisdom expanded, their understanding of the universe expanded, and they implemented it into a faith system mm. called Ma'at, M-A apostrophe A-T. And that faith system has actually influenced the three three of the world's most main religions, mm. which happen to all be patriarchal. And then permeate. Whereas, sorry. And, sorry, Ma'at was matriarchal. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. And then that influence permeates, I guess, through things like architecture into, you know, leads. Yes, 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 through architecture. But but it goes a bit deeper than that. On the walls of ancient temples in the Nile Valley, it's literally written that priests or students learn by degrees. Mm. And that's what we go to university for today, is to get our degree. Yeah. Um, And so there are all these connections, but because of slavery and colonialism, Uh, There was another French 18th century philosopher uh, called Montesquieu who said it is impossible to believe that Negroes are men because if we believe they are men, then it would be believed that we ourselves are not Christian. Mm. So in other words, you cannot afford to think of black people as being human beings. Because of the way they've been treated, it would make those who've treated them not very Christian-like. But if they're not human, if they're savages, then it's all right. That that treatment is all right. Mm. And that's a legacy. You know, when you look at whether it be Volney or Montesquieu that has influenced the world, Volney has been pushed to the sidelines. there was an a, a, an 18-year-old who took note of him and she wrote a book called Frankenstein in which the black the blind sorry the blind man in the cottage recommends to the monster um, a series of books in which to understand the human condition yeah and she recommends Volney's book Ruins of Empire wow. if, if, you know, as a way of understanding the humanity. Um, but Montesquieu was adopted. In fact, there's a small bust, no, medium-sized, uh, a small representation, <laughs> uh, a porcelain representation of Montesquieu um, at uh, Howard House, the stately home that was mm-hmm. built on the proceeds of sugar uh, from plantations in the, slave plantations in the West Indies. Um, Oh, the wealth was, Um, yeah. Um, And so Montesquieu inspired wider society. Volney remained underground. So for me, I've been forced to invest in the Montesquieu vision Mm. and and degrade myself. And I felt that very much as an actor in the 80s and 90s. And um, whereas I'm, I'm all for the Volney camp. And you talked a little bit about um, Harewood House, and you've you've done a a project in collaboration with them, I think, called a a storm at Harewood House, which That's, yes, yes, looks wonderful. And it's, I mean, it's sadly, <laughs> it's all sold out now. Yes, 
Yes, it, it's, it's hugely popular. I mean, because we're literally dealing with uh, 6,000 years of unknown history. Mm. Well, it's known, it's recorded, it's just been sidelined. Mm-hmm. And so for me uh, to represent people of my heritage, we have to uh, look at that history because that ancient history in the Nile Valley represents Africa's contribution to humanity. It represents um, our evidence of, of our civilization. So that's very important for me to know and very important, not just for black people, but for all people to know. So. We know who we're talking to. Yeah. And so we're not new to the table of civilization. And our genes are a lot older than what we've been raised to think they are. Yeah. It's been a, a proper mind game and it can impact on your mental health. And, um, uh, and yeah. another uh, project that I wanted to, to talk to you about was um, one you did in collaboration with the uh, Leeds Lytton Society and with the yes. Leeds Library, which was a lecturer on Wilson Armistead, who was yes. an anti-slave uh, campaigner and writer who yes. lived in Leeds during the 19th century. So yes. could you tell me just briefly a little bit more about this this project? I, I, I think Wilson Armistead was my access into local British history. And um, mm. I am fortunate to have been a founding member of a research group called the Diaspora Stories Research Group. Mm-hmm. And uh, we, dis- we decided to invade Leeds Library, the six of us, just kind of like go down there and see what's in there in relation to black history. And we found some interesting stuff, one of them being a book called In Tribute to the Negro, mm. written in 1848 by a Leeds Quaker and mustard manufacturer called Wilson Armistead. And uh, a lot of the book is, is patronizing in terms of, uh, of what should be done for uh, black people and Africans. Yeah. Um, but he definitely acknowledges the humanity of Africans. He writes over 150 biographies of Africans of note, you know, celebrated Africans as well as unheard of Africans, like an enslaved woman who saves up money through her life and then donates it to charity. Makes a big donation to charity when she dies and you just think, wow, that's amazing. Mm. Um, But also he mentions Benjamin Banneker, who was employed by Jefferson to plot key buildings in Washington DC in the 18th century in alignment with the stars just like the people of the Nile Valley did, because the pyramids are in alignment with constellations. Mm. And Benjamin Banneker was was formerly enslaved of African heritage. And um, that really connects with his heritage. So there's a lot to be discovered there. Um, Wilson Armistead dedicated the book to uh, Frederick Douglass, the great African-American orator and abolitionist, who uh, Armistead invited to Leeds in 1846 and 1859, and uh, so Wilson Armistead was like, whoa, I didn't realize there was that kind of richness, and you dig deeper and you found other Quakers who were admirable abolitionists who put, you know, put their money where their mouth was. Mm. Thomas Thomas Harvey, that particular favorite of mine, literally traveled 
to the West Indies when he heard about atrocities after emancipation had been achieved, there was an apprenticeship system that was, oh, the enslaved were abused because there were no laws to protect them anymore. Mm. And Thomas took himself to the West Indies, brought back someone with experience. That person, James Williams, aged 18 from Jamaica, testified to Parliament and the apprenticeship system was brought to an end. Mm. And I just think, wow, how many of us would do that today? And, and so then more and more I realised that through exploring local Leeds history, it actually connects to the wider yeah. global picture as well. And there should be a lot of pride with that. So we don't just get stuck on the micro that mm. whether somebody's racist or somebody's not racist. So, for example, Richard Osler, I think, was friends of William Wilberforce at one time, but then in the 1830s, he says, well, why are people crying for black people thousands of miles away when we've got our own children, you know, enslaved in factories? Why, why aren't we doing something about that? Which is a great point, but he made it into an either or, mm. you know, either you with us or you with them. What's wrong with, you know, yeah. everybody's suffering? Let's, let's help everybody. Yeah. Um, and in a sense, he was, he didn't campaign for the amount of decades that Wilberforce had campaigned, or for as long as the enslaved and the plantations, decade after decade, over many centuries, had rebelled against the system. He just came in off the back of that campaigning to say, well, yeah, well, what about, what about? I think that's the origins of, of whataboutism, instead yeah. of just instead of just doing the work, you're building on the back of what other people have done and they say, yeah, but what about my lot? Yeah. It's like, yeah, yeah, it's a good argument, but let's work, let's all work together. Yeah. It's interesting, it's interesting that you talk about local history um, being kind of a, a, a middle ground between like personal experience and these kind of broader kind yeah, of global, global. Mm. narratives because yes. I think that's another thing that I've has been a theme of these podcasts actually is the idea that um local history is is really wonderful because it you can connect to it in such a personal way and you have a sense yes. of ownership and connection with local history that's more difficult to feel when you learn about you know the battle of waterloo or something that you you can't you can't really recognize um in the same way so I I guess in that way, I mean, we've already talked a bit about this, but can you tell me a bit about your experience growing up in Leeds and Yorkshire and how you first began to engage with the heritage and the, the city? I mean, I suppose you've, you've talked about your introduction to it, but the the city itself, do you have memories of it, I guess, from when you were? Oh, under? goodness gracious me. Yeah, I mean, one of the things I used to say on the walk is that I used to walk around Leeds in awe um, at what these people's ancestors had left for them and that me as a black person I've got nothing to show mm. and there's there was no civilization apart, apart from loincloths but that's that's all I was told um but I, I lived around the town hall so I have distinct memories of St George's crypt the town hall we attended the Methodist church uh next uh, next to the town hall and the head row was always amazing to me. And um, from down Eastgate at sunset, 
when you look up the hedgerow and the sun is setting, that is so magical. Mm. Um, so the hedgerow was always like a thoroughfare for me. I, li- I lived in um, just behind where Park Lane College used to be. And um, I went to school in Hairhill, so how to get buses that, you know, I was back and forth along the hedgerow and just always found it amazing. And it's great to people watch in those days in the 70s growing up. Um, town was a lot quieter. Um, didn't go out after dark because it was dangerous if you were a person of colour. And sometimes even in the daytime, uh, you'd get chased and stuff. So, but um, I loved this, the Georgian squares. They were magical spaces for me. Um, me and friends, we'd, we'd build tents in them and, you know, we'd have, we'd have dens um, before they were smashed up by somebody. Um, but yeah, there were magic, magical times in Leeds on the university campus. Uh, the Georgian architecture on Park Lane always left an impression on me, but it wasn't until I was looking, until I read Peter Fryer's Staying Power, and then I realised, you know, you look in the at the back in the index, and you're looking for Leeds and Yorkshire, and where it relates locally. And I said, I want to tell those stories, mm. local stories to local people, and so that's how it started, and that's what yeah. I'm still doing. And I suppose knowing that that element of knowing the city like the back of your hand and 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 really being so ingrained in it. And then also when you when you do these tours, knowing these characters and and playing them for so many years. And then you can I, I read um, in an interview that you you don't you know, no tour is exactly the same because you yeah. kind of improvise it and, and react to what people are interested in. And that yeah. kind of real connection with the place allows you to do that and be creative and and tailor these tours to what people are interested in and what they need or want to learn about which is fantastic. Uh, My background in theatre started in theatre and education and I did that for many years and so I'm I'm no big fan of the fourth wall I talk you listen Mm. but but I do talk a lot (laughs) (laughs) I do talk a lot on these walks and (laughs) <laughs> on, on, on uh, podcasts as well um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but there's so much to talk about because it's it's 6,000 years of history mm. and I just feel so proud of these people who came to Leeds and the contributions that people of colour have made over the years voluntarily or involuntarily and taking us up to the Windrush generation and their um, incredible kind of resilience to you know to take things that you know they didn't ask for and to deal with it and mm. achieve incredible goals considering the history um, and so I want to um, challenge the system that says I have no humanity by presenting different scenarios and because there's a framework to the walk I, it, it allows me to be flexible mm-hmm. and I like to t- treat each audience as individual mm-hmm. well uh, we do and it, it works very well so some audiences get information that others don't get but there is so much information it's impossible to yeah to ret- retain it all but what you do get is an impression 
that um, the system that we were all educated with is being challenged. Yeah. And I think, I mean, I, you might disagree with me knowing Lee's far better than me, but I, since I've, I've come here, I've noticed this real kind of independence of spirit about the city and a kind of a willingness to embrace narratives that challenge dominant ones. I and mean, when I was researching, I think, I mean, one of the things I love about Lee's is I feel that there's a real, um, there's so many independent venues and independent organizations and, and this kind of culture of local as opposed to, you know, national or global. Um, and when I was researching Heritage Corner, I found collaborations and projects in connection with so many independent venues and organizations within the city, um, whether that's museums or theatres or schools to, to us um, here at the Leeds Library. Do you think there is something to that idea and, and what is it about the city today that inspires you and makes your work possible and meaningful? Well, I, I think what Heritage Corner has achieved is, is what Leeds is potentially capable of, but I don't think it's it's really gone full swing out there. I mean, a lot of these things depends on funding and um, it's not everyone who's prepared to put their money where their mouth is. Yeah. Um, and specifically in the 1980s, in the late 80s, early 90s, there was a lot of funding entitled Equal Opportunities. Mm -hmm. And this went on for many years, over to the two decades and then dried up. When it dried up here in Leeds, perhaps in the, in the region, there was nothing to show for it. So companies, organizations applied for the money, received the money, um, employed a token black person, but that money went to strengthen their infrastructures. Mm -hmm. It didn't go toward building an organization to sustain any meaningful work. Mm. And I think that's a stain and a shame on the city because it treated um, Leeds residents of color as insignificant. Mm. Useful when when you know when resources are attached, otherwise meh. And um, I took that personally. Mm. And um, without funding, because Heritage Corner has not applied directly for funding, because I want the projects to mean something to the city. Mm. And so uh, in talking with people and developing partnerships, um, these people are showing that they care and that they are prepared to share their resources by building partnerships mm. um, with Heritage Corner to tell narratives that are more inclusive. Mm. And, and that's something that should have been done in the 80s and 90s. And I was a part of that movement thinking, wow, something's great is going to come out of all this investment. And to see people just, oh, well, there's no funding. We can't do anything about it. I was like, sorry, what? Um, they had no real perception of the suffering that communities of color went through mm. and what they needed, you know. Um, over four to 500 years of enslavement 
and treated like animals, you need some healing. And the enslavers, they received healing in the shape of 20 million pounds, and that's in Victorian money. The equivalent today would be 17 billion pounds, the amount that we bailed out the banks. That's how much um, owners of slave plantations were bailed out in the 19th century. And we didn't finish paying off that debt. Mm. That the, the, the government loaned the money to pay off the slave owners. And that debt wasn't paid off until 2015. Mm. So not only were my taxes going toward paying off the debt of the people who enslaved my ancestors, but the funding to address it was actually going to white organizations as well mm. who were not investing in an infrastructure that, that would support, you know, some form of compensation. Does that make sense? Yeah. Do you feel that that kind of um, tokenism or, or um, misdirection of these, these funding is, is still a danger today? Or is it, do you feel that it's oh. Kind of changed? Oh, oh, oh. Sadly, yeah, sadly, because um, that's what how colonialism yeah. evolved. That's the mentality is we can take anything from you that you have and we can make it our own and not feel any way about it. Mm. Jazz, blues, rock and roll, you know, you, you, you name it. Um, the little things that... Um, people of color have created for themselves. It's somehow it's like, oh, well, you don't need it. You already have it. Oh, you've got rhythm, it's natural. <laughs> you know, it's, um, we need infrastructures whereby we can pass on what we've learned to the next generation so that they don't have to go through the same things. That's the, that's the ideal. I'd, I'd love to see it where kids of all hue and, you know, cultural backgrounds learn about each other yeah. in a positive way um, and we can only do that if we decolonize our minds I mean colonialism has done great um, for Britain but you know people say well why can't we do achieve what the Victorians achieved why can't we be better you know we should be able to we don't have the same resources that um, the Victorians had mm. in terms of slavery and colonialism. They could they could build the the London Underground and not not feel it on the wallet. We couldn't do that today. Um, it's it, it, that was an incredible um, accomplishment, amazing. Um, and so we have to work together in a different way. And you can't work as a team if you regard members of that team as being less than human based on what you've been educated yeah. and you haven't, you haven't challenged. Yeah. I suppose it goes back to what you were saying at the beginning about the way that you work, which is, you know, repeating, repeating, repeating and, and telling these stories again and again. And there's a, a wonderful quote that I, I found in um, an interview that you gave that, that stood out to me. <laughs> <laughs> Another one. 
we can be in awe of the narrative that likes to be seen as dominant, but it is artificial. So it shouldn't stop you from establishing your own narrative and finding your own strengths. And I think that that will be useful for students, not just at the university, but in general, who also find themselves in awe and intimidated. So, yeah. yeah. I, I mean, I was, I was 50 when I went to, in my 50s, when I went to university to do my MA. And even age 50, even being born and grown up in that area, I was intimidated by these gigantic columns and I had um, imposter syndrome mm. that at any given moment I was going to be revealed and uh, exposed and kicked out. And um, I, I was in awe, but also intimid intimidated. And when you go into an environment where if you are reflected, it's not in a positive light, um, where the resources for you to tell your story are not as advantageous as others, um, it, it, it impacts on your self-esteem. Mm. Um, your humanity is taking a knock almost on a daily basis outside the university, inside the university, in your, in your life previously. And um, it, it's hard to stay strong. So for me, it was um, finding ways to rewrite that narrative mm. and put myself in a better frame, work. And uh, at the back of the university near Woodhouse Moor, there is a field called St. George's Field mm -hmm. where Pablo Frank, Britain's first black circus owner, um, uh, Britain's first circus owner of African heritage is buried there and um, he appears at the end of my walk so mm. in my lunch times I go and talk to Pablo and he understood everything you know and he just let me talk it was wonderful. Wow and um, yeah I, I think I'm gonna ask you now about um, the uh, Unseen Histories festival which I think um, is, is is happening currently as we speak but by the time this podcast goes out we'll we'll have finished I think um, and it's a it's a month-long festival running throughout September of artworks and events exploring Black British history in Leeds um, and the festival is curated by Bath artists in and around the city with support from Heritage Corner um, pioneers of the Leeds Black History Walk and Assembly House and artist studios in a project based in Armley Leeds You've got a fantastic programme of events, including film screenings, creative workshops and history walks. Can you tell me a little bit more about Unseen Histories and, and how it's been going? And I guess that it kind of, yeah, this feels like a kind of, not a culmination, but a kind of a flourishing of, of, of work, which uh, kind of takes this idea of taking Black history and leads and, and doing creative things with it and just repeating these stories and, you know. Yes. Yes, if, if, if I may, um, if you'll allow me to just go back into the past to just quickly sure. explain how we got here. And I mentioned the Diaspora Stories Research Group, which was formed in the early 90s, uh, whilst doing blackout development work at the West Yorkshire Playhouse, um, that left no infrastructure, that the continuity was the Diaspora Stories Research Group, which yeah. met whilst these um, activities were taking place there. And these were white historians initially that were 
uh, plying me with information on black people in Britain. And I, I, I didn't want that. I wanted, I, my identity was messed up. I, I wanted to know who I was. I wanted to know real African history, not history about black people in Britain. That mm. just didn't make sense to me. And uh, so it took me 10 years to understand and compute and see the, the significance of Pablo Vank mm. and Alauda Equiano and Frederick Douglass's visits to Leeds. Because through those narratives, you can tell the wider narrative, but it, it resonates in the space where you are now. Mm. And, um, and so moving forward um, in 2005, the research uh, conducted by the Diaspora Stories Research Group informed a community project called the Leeds Bicentenary Transformation Project, where for four years, um, individuals and groups in Chapeltown um, conducted a series of programs to mark the bicentenary of the abolition of the slave trade, because mm. we wanted to find a different narrative, a different angle. And when that project finished in 2009, the Leeds Black History Walk became the legacy project mm. of, of that four-year project. And um, through that project, we can invite uh, potential partners, um, people who are interested in change, but mostly it's people who want to understand why there are so many issues connected with Africans and, and migrants and, you know, why can't we talk about slavery, etc.? So I think the Leeds Black History Walk sets out a way in which this uncomfortable history can be approached mm -hmm. um, without shame or guilt. Mm. Those are very negative and useless emotions. And, you know, without saying it, we ask people to leave them, you know, outside of, of the shared space. Um, and so, therefore, once you've got a model on which you can approach these difficult issues, then, you know, the, there's the potential to do amazing things. After George Floyd, um, myself and the Assembly House was chatting. They agreed to bring their artists on a walk. It created a very strong impression with the artists, and they wanted to make a contribution. And so we developed this festival and um, Alice from Assembly House and Ness, Vanessa from Heritage Corner, um, they've really, they've worked together and generated this amazing atmosphere of possibilities. Mm. And um, this is something that I've been fortunate enough to establish with uh, Kirkstall Abbey and the Abbey House Museum, with Leeds Museum, with um, Armley, the Leeds Industrial Museum at Armley, as well as um, theatres and other arts companies, is, is because if we get funding and we just carry out our own programmes, to me it's not as meaningful yeah. as have, having discourse and dialogue. Yeah. And Sorry, I could go on, but for me, this is magical. It's um, mm. when I was doing theatre and education, I realised children listened to what you were saying, but they were more interested in your relationship to other characters or even other actors on stage. So they're looking at body language. 
you know, they're looking at, do they really mean what they're saying that we can all get along mm. or are they, are they just acting, you know? So those meaningful, you know, res, uh, acts of respect between human beings that evolve on stage when you're rehearsing with people and you're in each other's company and you, you become affectionate um, toward each other, that genuine affection is transmitted to the mm. young people. And I think that's where people learn is on, on, on a subconscious level. Yeah. And so actually creating partnerships to show that people can work together speaks volumes. And um, we also realized it's about discourse. So somebody attended an event the other day and said, this is the 40th, I, the 40th anniversary of the uprisings in Chapeltown, when in 1981, uh, because of uh, incidents of police brutality and unfair um, systems that denied access to key um, services, um, there were uprisings, social uprisings, because the tension could be cut with a knife. And it's the 40th anniversary, and you know, mm-hmm. how many people realize that? So when you come together, you realize your journey, you can share information, and that's what we need across this city is different communities mm. coming together and learning about mm. each other. And creating a, a kind of lasting legacy or sense of history sense of community sense of shared understanding yes because we're talking about team leads here we're we're all working towards the the the, the betterment of the city yeah that that we all love and I like what you said about you know uh, about leads and um it seems open and kind of flexible it's it's I think it's always belonged to the people Mm. in in a way um it's the number two financial city in the country um but you don't feel that it's money that's ruling the culture Mm -hmm. um i don't know what that is but um you 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 get a sense it's it's about the people Mm. i I uh, feel that there's a a sense of um willingness to invest in what you personally kind of value and cherish in your life whether that's like you know buying your food not from a supermarket but from a you know a market close to your house or even like you know those yeah. kind of smaller things the, those kind of individual um fingerprints yeah um that you can you can leave your fingerprint on the city because you're not being um looked down upon by a big statue there are no real uh, dominant figures in Leeds's history to say this is the way you must be mm-hmm. there is a sense that you can create uh, your own identity leads as a strong history for social uh, reform mm. but in the 1807 election um, the national election they said that if you look to leads it acts as a weather vane a political weather vane for the country so whichever yeah. way Leeds goes the rest of the country will so in all fairness you you do have your extreme yeah. elements <laughs> in Leeds and you've got your your liberal elements um but in the scope of world philosophy we need both sides yeah wow um and Joe thank you so much for for agreeing to to 
have this conversation. I've been thank you for so the interesting questions and and insights. Thank yeah, you very much. Um, and I guess to finish up, I guess, do you have any kind of upcoming projects to talk about that you want to share or or make people aware of? Um, well, we're always transforming local history into creative or public events and um, we'll be doing something at uh, Bradford St George's Hall mm -hmm. on the Fisk Jubilee Singers who also performed in the 19th century at the Leeds Town Hall I believe three or four times um, and, um, and, and, that, and also to highlight the work we're doing at Harewood House is that we would like to work with any organization who feel they have difficulties decolonizing a, a straight jacket narrative. Mm. I, th I think there are different ways of approaching difficult subjects that make it palatable for the public. And so that's how um, Heritage Corner would like to move forward and help to train up younger ones as well mm. yeah. to, do the to do the same, yeah. yeah. Wow. Excellent. Thank you so much. Um, Great. Thank you. Thank you very much. This has been a podcast from the Leeds Library. Links to more information about our guests and any works talked about can be found in the description. If you'd like to find out more about the Leeds Library and any of our upcoming events, please visit our website at www.theleedslibrary.org.uk or you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram or Facebook at the Leeds Library. Thank you for listening and keep your eyes and ears peeled for more tales from the Leeds Library in our future episodes released every Wednesday.